Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Carl, welcome to the War Room. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Okay, so you decided to tackle maybe one of the most hot-button issues in the U.S. right now. (laughs) I mean, it feels like every day there's some talk about identity how we defined it who can who who, who can define it um and you've waded off into this debate what got you interested in the subject well a couple of things first of all i think it's actually become hotter since i decided to write on the subject <laughs> so i sort of i wouldn't say i blundered into it but it certainly got a lot more exciting uh, since i started writing the book a uh, couple of things uh, i i became interested in the issue of transgenderism around about 2016 when it it came calling uh, as a policy in the school district where I was living outside Philadelphia and where my kids actually had been to the the public schools that they'd graduated by then. Uh, Secondly, at the time, I was a part-time pastor of a church and was intrigued by the fact that younger people just didn't think intuitively about matters of sex and sexual identity in the way that people of my generation did. And I was interested in what had brought about the change. Uh, Thirdly, uh, my friend uh, Rod Dreyer and Justin Taylor, the uh, senior editor at Crossway, both simultaneously suggested to me that I write an introduction to the thought of Philip Reef. And it was while working on the introduction to the thought of Philip Reef that it struck me that all my various interests could be pulled together and actually a more interesting project would be using Reef's ideas and applying them to the contemporary cultural context. So a whole variety of things uh, came into play. I'm a a Reformation guy by background. Uh, I was also getting bored with just writing and teaching about the Reformation. (laughs) So I was looking for another project and, hey, why not choose the most controversial topic of the beginning of the 21st (laughs) century to, to, to... for my next idea sort of thing. <laughs> okay, so let's go through that perspective. And some of the pushbacks are going to be, okay, A, first off, did Jesus ever address this? Or does the Bible actually address these topics? Yeah. You're, you're reaching for things that aren't actually in the text. Yeah. And then the second to that would be is, okay, even if the Bible does address it, what relevance is that for today? So what would you say to those two yeah. objections? Yeah. Well, the first question is very, it's a very, very straightforward and legitimate one in many ways. Of course, uh, you know, issues of sexual politics are not the only thing that the Bible doesn't address. There are a lot of issues, tech, you know, advanced technology, for example, there are all kinds of things that have popped up in, in the modern world, industrialization, that the Bible doesn't directly address. But most Christians would want to say the Bible has something to say about on the grounds that, you know, as Christians, it's meant to shape how we interact with these kind of developments. So first of all, I would say, yeah. You know, fair cop. The uh, the Bible does not a- directly address the, the transgender issue, for example. Uh, secondly, I would say that that means, of course, that as we move from the biblical text to thinking Christianly about the world in which we live, it's it's not a straightforward move. It's not a question of grabbing hold of a Bible verse and saying this speaks directly to this issue. I just need to do what this Bible verse tells me, and I'll be fine. I mean, 
I don't really get into this in the book, but when you think about some of the debates about uh, homosexuality at the moment, the Bible really treats sex as activities. Some sexual acts are right, some sexual acts are wrong. It never gets into the kind of psychological questions about what is the status of sexual desire vis-a-vis our identity that, that we're now very uh, interested in and that are sort of roiling our uh, culture at the moment. So all of that is to say, yeah, very legitimate question. I would respond by saying that the Bible may not address, say, transgenderism directly, but it clearly assumes a, a fundamental distinction between men and women. We see that in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. It also assumes a fundamentally procreative uh, dimension to the relationship between uh, men and women. So I think there are foundations within the Bible that one can go to and say, these can help us as Christians navigate and think about the issues as they're being presented to us here. Can't remember the second question you asked, Ryan. There were were two questions. Yeah, so that that was the first one. The second would be is, okay, now that you've answered that, what relevance does any of this have today? This is a couple thousand years old. Um, Obviously, some people would say it's all fake, but but, but for someone like yourself who believes it's real, what relevance is this text to us today? Yeah, and again, a good question. I think that comes down to a faith position. There's a sense in which uh, the, the non-believer is going to say it's, it's an ancient text. It, it, it has no relevance today. I want to respond to that in two ways. I want to say, well, first of all, actually, I do think the narrative of the Bible speaks to us today. It speaks powerfully. And secondly, I would say it makes sense of our world. Uh, I was on a podcast, the Trigonometry podcast, with a couple of guys from the UK recently. They're both atheists. They were very upfront about being atheists. And they asked the question, you know, can atheists build a moral society? And my answer was, I'm a historian. I'm never going to say never or no, because just, you know, as soon as you say never, round the bend comes the atheist society that's moral or something like that. So I'm not going to say no or never, but I am going to say it's a whole lot more difficult. You've got a lot more work to do. I think the biblical anthropology, uh, the idea that men and women are biologically different, that there's an asymmetry to to men and women biologically, and that that shapes how we interact with the world and shapes how we interact with each other. That makes a kind of sense. And I would say thus far, all attempts to overcome that asymmetry have found it have ended up with tragedy or disaster or, or with much worse scenarios uh, than the Bible and following the, the simple Bible teaching on that would, would lead to. So I would answer that question by saying, you know, OK, if, it, if it's irrelevant, show me what you have that makes more sense of the world in which we are now living. Mm. One of the things that's encompassed in this debate is it's really weird from my perspective because Part of the the argument is an individualistic argument. It's my body, my choice, right? However, it's a collectivist argument in the sense of everyone around me has to adopt this position. And, and so you have this, weird, and, then, and then on the capitalist side or the free market side, you kind of have a, hey, we're individualists, but collectively, we don't want to be forced to do this either. And so you kind of have these weird, almost opposing, yeah. contradicting views that are hitting each other. How do we make sense of that? Yeah, and I think what you're pointing to there is is the problem of you know, what you might call philosophically the problem of recognition. I, I give a lecture as part of my humanities course at Grove. One of the lectures I give on that course, I, I, I entitle it or part of it, Why Do All Teenagers Look the Same? 
because there's a sense in which you know you chat to a teenager and they'll tell you that their clothes and their makeup that's an exact expression of who they are as an individual then you compare them to every other teenager you meet and wow they they all look exactly the same mm. i think we intuitively live our lives as free individuals but of course the reality is more complicated than that i may intuit my life as a free individual but in actual fact i'm socially connected to a whole lot of other people and who i am is not simply who i think i am inside it's the result of a a complex negotiation if you like between my self-consciousness and the nature of the culture or the world uh, in which i live and i think it it points it, when you set the question up that way it points the fact that our intuitions of being individuals are clearly inadequate in some way or are wrong in some way that actually this idea that we are born free and everywhere in chains that's a great idea and it appeals to our desire for autonomy and, and sovereignty but in actual fact it's a nonsense nobody's free nobody's born free we're all born very dependent upon other people uh, and so I think that is that goes to the sort of heart of what you're trying to get at there, that there is a disconnect, if you like, between how I intuitively relate to the world, free individual, free sovereign individual, and how I actually live in the world, which is much more to do with social conditioning than I like to imagine. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned uh, your, I think, your dad or your grandfather and how he would think about these issues. Um Let's go back to that same question earlier, though. What relevance should our near relatives, our, our fathers or grandfathers or great-grandfathers, have to speak on these issues? Because the, if you take this issue and put it to an aside, um, there are larger issues that we can look at quite clearly that, that uh, the, the older generations missed the boat, if you will. So how do yeah. we not know that they didn't miss the boat on this one? Yeah, well, I actually used the example of my grandfather in the book really to – to simply draw out in, in rather dramatic terms the difference between, say, my generation and his generation. Well, I, use, uh, I think I use them in the way of saying, you know, if I'd asked my grandfather what job satisfaction was, he wouldn't even understand the question. And if I asked him, well, was your job worthwhile? He would answer in terms of how he fulfilled his obligations to others. If you ask me that question, I'm, I'm going to give it, A, I'm going to understand the question, and B, I'm going to say, hey, I get a great kick out of teaching. My job makes me feel good and what i'm doing there really is is simply trying to bring out the the difference in the way we imagine our place in the world my grandfather's instincts were all about obligation and responsibility to others mine are all about we might say the obligation of the world to me to make me feel happy now what relevance is that comparison one it helps me understand that things have shifted and changed in the last generation but secondly, I think it also raises for me a question of whose way of imagining the world is actually more realistic and more adequate to what is reality. The bottom line, I think, is that loss of a sense of responsibility that my grandfather had uh, is something that is uh, rather impractical and unreal. I may not think that I have responsibilities, but if I act on that, other people get seriously damaged. If I get women pregnant and, and don't hang around to support them, they get damaged or they have to have abortions. If I abandon my family for, for the dream of a life with another woman, my family get damaged. So I'd want to say we can learn from other generations in terms of, I, I think that there is a real 
mutual dependency that exists between human beings that we have attenuated, we don't like, we're trying to pretend it doesn't exist. We can learn that from previous generations. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that the previous generation gets everything right. Uh, issues of race, issues of slavery, issues of how to treat people with whom we disagree on some of the very issues we're talking about now. I don't want to look to previous generations as a paradigm for those things. They get stuff wrong. But on that basic question of what does it mean to be human? It means to be somebody who stands in relation of dependency and obligation towards others. I think previous generations were more realistic than ours. Is that a Western ideal? Would you find this if you were to go into other parts of the world who haven't been Westernized, if you will? When I wrote the books, I, I was very clear that to, to, both to myself and others who asked me, this is a Western narrative. I, it, it's, it's simply my, my ignorance of other cultures. that do, I don't want to say that my, this pattern works for other cultures. I would say certainly my experience of friends I've had in Africa, for example, where the village and the village hierarchy is very, very strong and very much part of how they think of themselves. Or friends from Korea, where a kind of feudal hierarchy still applies. Older people are respected. There are certain obligations of younger people to older people. It inclines me to believe that the narrative I've told works better in Western Europe, North America, than it might do, say, in Seoul, South Korea, or uh, parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting because when you go when you go around like some of this obligation talk, um, I'm thinking about, you know, my time in China, being in China, working with some folks with Chinese background and kind of how they would articulate some of that is, is going to be similar. Of course, it's going to be more of a, a state mentality involved. And mm. so it's, it's not purely Western, but there is, there is some distinctiveness there that would be um, Western maybe from what they're going to articulate. Okay. So going through history, um, Maybe maybe do that for us. Maybe give us a quick snapshot of Western history, as you said, you're a historian. And then where do you start to see these trends uh, break in? Is this an Enlightenment era thing? Is this an Industrial Revolution thing? Is this something yeah. else altogether, the sexual revolution? Where does this start to get hold? You mentioned 2016, but obviously things don't happen overnight. So it's built up from somewhere. Yeah. So where does, where does it come from? Well, if we're thinking the, the, the sort of burden of the books about what I call expressive individualism, and that's you know, to, to jump to the present, that's the idea that we are essentially made up by internal feelings. And to be authentic, we need to be able to act at publicly on those internal feelings and have other people accept or recognize us for that. So where does that come from? Well, there are some ancient, ancient precedents for this. I do think one of the, the key moves that makes this possible is uh, the New Testament. Uh, I think when in the ancient world, clearly there's an understanding of the inner space. You read Homer's Iliad, Achilles sulks in his tent. Uh, you read Aristotle or Plato, they have some idea of the, of the human will as such. What you get with the Apostle Paul, which is so dramatic, I think, is the notion that that inner space can be conflicted, that Paul can talk about you know, the good that I want to do that I don't do. Uh, the evil that I don't want to do, that I end up doing. And with Paul, and then later with Augustine, as he elaborates this in his book, The Confessions, the idea of the inner space as a place of conflict makes it much more, for want of a better term, three-dimensional. 
the inner space becomes much more significant for who we are at that point. So there's a sense in which you could say the modern condition is deeply rooted actually in Christianity and Christian psychology. Uh, Christianity uh, shares, I wouldn't say some of the blame because that, that's a sort of value judgment, but shares some responsibility for the development of the modern person. Where things really start to accelerate, I think, is late medieval Reformation time when external authority starts to, to break down because society is becoming more fluid, social mobility is kicking in, old institutions are crumbling, the printing press is leading to rising literacy rates, which leads to greater levels of political and individual self-consciousness. We have Descartes in uh, uh, trying to ground certainty in the individual rather than in the solid externalities of church, et cetera, et cetera. Where I pick up my narrative is in Rousseau. The, the choice of the starting place in, in any history book is always more or less arbitrary because wherever you start, you know, if you start on January the 31st, 1522, somebody's going to email you and ask why you didn't start on January the 30th, 1522. There's always that day before the backstory. Rousseau, I think, is, is interesting because he is, he's very influential on modern politics and on modern educational theory. So he is a giant in terms of his influence on Western culture. But perhaps more than anybody else, he rather beautifully articulates the fact that who he is is who he is inside. When he writes his autobiography, he says, I'm going to make, uh, this book's going to be a study of a man. The man is going to be myself. And all I need to do is go inside and see what's going on inside. And, and that is the, the war, you know, that's a watershed moment, I think. Um, you know, jump to 2016 and think, uh, 2015, 2016, think about Bruce Jenner's interview with Diane Sawyer. The language that Jenner uses is fascinating then because he talks about, you know, I've lived a lie. I'm finally able to be the person I always have been. It's like Rousseau has risen from the grave. He's saying, you know, there's always been this me, this psychological me inside this body that's disconnected from that me. Finally, I'm able to, to play the person I always have been. So Rousseau, I think, is critical in this. And you can trace the influence of Rousseau out through the Romantics. Uh, Freud is, is kind of influenced by Rousseau because he's fascinated with the, the inner space. Freud very much darkens Rousseau, though. For Rousseau, the inner space is delightful. If, if Ryan and Carl can get back to their inner spaces, we're just going to be great guys. You know, if we can just get back to what we were before society twisted us. We're going to be great guys. Freud says, no, if you go back to who you really are, you're going to find something pretty dark and destructive. Uh, it's going to be all about sex and violence. Uh, so Freud makes the, the, the sort of the inner space very dark and also uh, grounds those inner feelings primarily in sexual urges and drives, making sex so a component, a central fundamental component of our identity. So I would say Freud is the key man in many ways for understanding the, the modern self. Mm. What would you say about the role of the second great awakening? Because that, that's not going to have maybe the sex aspect, but it's going to have very much this individualistic expression mentality yeah. involved into it. 
Yeah, you could write, you could actually write uh, the narrative that I wrote using basically what we would call secular or in case of Rousseau, mildly Christian at best kind of figures. You could do it, I think, using religious figures. It's it's no coincidence that at the same time as Rousseau is engaging in his exploration of the inner space, uh, Jonathan Edwards' first great awakening is writing the religious affections. This interest in psychology and how we understand the inner space is not the preserve of those who are departing from Orthodox Christianity. It's a general phenomenon in the 18th century. Second Great Awakening, again, I think this emphasis upon personal faith, personal decision, very much tying in with a kind of, for want of a better term, sort of existentialist strands mm. that we're seeing emerging in notions of personhood. So I would say, yeah, there is a there is a parallel religious narrative to the more secular one that I that I try to tell. And going back to what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, to maybe truncate it a little bit, is part of this is the, the Reformation. And so the break off for us in 2022, it's kind of hard to think about the role of the Catholic Church. We might think about the popes and stuff, but it's kind of maybe yeah. uh, how it would have been in the mind of everyone. So when they when that institution was split, I guess it split in 1054, but split for the Reformation, um, you have a new world basically that's coming out. And so that begins a slow dissension into where we're at today is what I'm, what I'm hearing you say. With that being said, does that mean that we need to have a stark departure from where we're at to recorrect this course? Yeah, good question. And I think, uh, yeah, the, the trite answer is yes. The, the problem is, okay, what does that look like? Right. Uh, and I think that you know, the, I, I was at a lecture, my friend Rod Dre, I was giving a lecture on Saturday about, you know, we, we need to re-enchant the world. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, okay, how do you do that? How do you re-enchant the world? Uh, you know, after hundreds of years of slow but steady disenchantment, highly technologized, et cetera, et cetera, just reading Tolkien to your kids in school isn't going to do it. <laughs> so I think the question of how do we how do we recover some of that external or you know, set aside the language of, of, of reenchantment, figure out how do we recover some of the mysterious external authority of the world? That's hard to do. I think it can only be done initially, at least locally, and it can only be done in, in local communities. I don't think there is any public policy that can be implemented that will do this. Uh, I think if we want to understand the world as solid again, that has to be the solidity of strong local communities. And I think the church plays a role in that. The church is not just a place where we worship. It's also to be a community. That's what made the early church powerful. Second, third centuries, the church is strong, not because it's engaged in uh, political machinations. It does that later, of course, but that's not what initially makes it strong. It's strong because it's a marginal community that is a true community. Uh, So I think it, it has to be done locally. And I'm, I'm increasingly unconvinced by the concept of re-enchantment. I think what we need to do is grasp not so much the enchantment of the world, but the holiness of God. That is something that the church can do. We don't have to re-enchant the whole of the world, but the church can impress upon its people the holiness of God. And I think that takes us a step in the right direction as well. 
where would that leave trans people with a emphasis on the holiness of God? Well, I think again, the, I always make a distinction when I'm talking about the trans issue. I think we, we need to make a distinction with what I would regard, and, and some people, of course, would, would regard this as hate speech, but I, I'm going to stand by it anyway. We have to make a distinction with what I regard as trans ideology, which is the philosophy, the theory, the queer thing, whatever, that, that surrounds the trans question, and then the individual people whose lives are being stressed, traumatized, and in some cases destroyed by the outworkings of this ideology. And I would say, where does it leave trans people? Well, I would hope that when, if a trans person comes into a church, they would be treated with compassion and love. They would not be treated as a freak and shunted to one side. I trust that the church community would embrace them. Now, there are going to be difficulties in that. What pronouns you use, et cetera, et cetera. How far do you go in? How far does supporting the individual mean affirming their chosen identity? That's a, that's a difficult question. But I would say, again, you can't solve the trans question compellingly at the level of generalized principles and policies. It has to manifest itself in the life of the community. And we need to make that distinction, I think, between the philosophy of trans thinking and the individuals who are struggling with this. I've never met anybody whose lives been touched by transgenderism who's particularly happy about it. I think that this is an area where the church needs to be ruthless with the politicians and infinitely compassionate with the victims. Mm, that's an interesting point there because um, I have a, you can't see, there's a book behind me on, on critical race theory. And if you get into those debates, what you will hear is, um, people will argue at the scholarly level, what's being said about CRT is not what's being said at on the street level. I'm not a scholar, so I don't know. Um, I find that interesting, though, and I'm actually quite sympathetic to, if that's true, what they're saying, which is, theoretically, it's possible that the scholars are saying this, but by the time it gets down to the average Joe, they, it's been, you know, it's like the game of telephone. It's been, it's been transmitted so much that they don't actually make the arguments that are being made at the top. Right. What you're saying here could touch on that as well, which is how do you navigate perhaps yeah. this argument of what's being pushed as trans ideology um, yeah. and then go balance that with someone who you meet on a local level? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think you're, you're, you're almost certainly correct there. I, I was taught I, I was on a panel about critical race theory at Grove City College recently. And one of the questions I was asked, well, what do you do with, with young people who are getting into critical race theory? And my, my response was something like this, that most of the young people I've met that I talked to about critical race theory, they're not actually into critical race theory. They think they are, but really they, they, they don't want to be racist. They know that racism's bad. And the only idiom out there at the moment for opposing racism is the sort of jargon that critical race theory is throwing up. So they grab hold of a few words. But in good faith, in good faith opposition to racism, they sound like critical race theorists. So when you actually sit down and talk and unpick what critical race theory is really claiming, they start to realize, oh, no, that, that's not what I want to say at all. Uh, I think probably the same thing applies to, to the LGBTQ stuff. Um, it's interesting, Abigail Favale, who'd be a 
actually she'd be a great guest on, on your podcast if you've not had her, her book the genesis of gender she taught uh, gender theory for many years and she makes the point that one of the things that i didn't i as a gender theorist struck me was that my students didn't actually understand what i was saying that i wasn't simply saying that that you know women have been badly treated by men over I was actually sort of saying to them, there's no such thing as woman. And the students didn't realize quite how radical that claim was. So bring that back to my, my earlier answer. I would say, yeah, what we need to do is, you know, when I'm chatting to young people is say, I know what you're wanting to do in this situation. You're wanting to love and support your friend. What's the best way to do that? First of all, I do think that the Bible itself provides us with a decent sort of critical theory. Uh, if the essence of critical theory is exposing false narratives, well, what's Isaiah doing uh, when he talks about the man who goes out and chops down a tree? Half of it he uses to cook his dinner with, the other half he carves into a garden, he bows down and worships it, and he never asks himself, is this consistent behavior? I think that's, uh, that's a great piece of critical theory. What Isaiah is doing there is exposing the ideology of idolatry. So I'd want to say to the students, first of all, don't throw out the Bible because you, do, you think all it does is affirm the status quo. No, look at the Bible. It actually gives us tools. And it gives us tools because it does believe there is actually a reality. Critical theories really deny the ability to, to get to any kind of real reality. The Bible is the best kind of critical theory because it does have a reality that it is judging these falsehoods uh, over against. So I'd want to press that on, on them. Secondly, I'd want to affirm the good that they're trying to achieve this. They want to be kind to their gay friends. They want to be kind to friends who think they're trans. That's a good thing. We don't want to treat people like dirt. We don't want to treat anybody made in the image of God like a piece of garbage. We really don't, however much we disagree with choices and decisions they're making. But then I'd want to take them and say, you know, and what does loving and caring for this person look like? Let's look at some of the health stats. Let's look at some of the suicide stats. Let's go to some hardcore empirical data and see whether this kind of approach that queer theory is offering you, this, this affirmative approach, is actually leading to trans people having better lives. And let's think about, well, if this is failing, what can our better alternative be? So what should be the ideal for the modern self? Uh, I think we need to start with understanding. We, we need to start with rejecting the myth of untrammeled, autonomous human freedom. It's pretty simple to do when you think, as I've said, we're born uh, dependent. Uh, man is not born free. Man is born dependent. Secondly, I think we need to to reflect upon the significance, the limitations, and the implications of our bodies. We're all born as embodied human beings. And I think that provides us with an avenue for thinking about what it means to be human. It's more intuitive, I think, than, than propositional in this way. Uh, I, was, I was at Princeton just last week giving a lecture, and I, I use this as an example. So you can imagine late at night, uh, Professor Robert George, probably the preeminent pro-life thinker in the United States today, and Professor Peter Singer, uh, one of the preeminent pro-abortion 
pro-euthanasia, pro-infanticide thinkers today, both of them Princeton professors, are walking down Nassau Street late at night and they hear a baby crying and they look over to a, a shop door and they see a basket and they go to the basket and there's a newborn baby in the basket, obviously being abandoned. Uh, my guess is that there would be no disagreement between those two men, regardless of the, the difference of their philosophies over how to respond. I don't think Robert George is going to say, we need to get this child to a hospital, get the police onto it and, and find you know, a caring home for this child. And Peter Singer responds, no, the child isn't really a person until it's two years old. Let's leave it here for the, the animals to, to, to eat or whatever. It's, it's not a person. We shouldn't care about it. Both of them, I think, are intuitively going to say, we need to care for this baby. What I would suggest is we need to reflect upon the moral implications of that in intuition for what it means to be a human. I think that scenario points us to the fact that human beings, human selves, are really interconnected and mutually dependent. And we need to build upon that intuitive foundation for understanding what human beings are. And then when we come to the discourse of rights, uh, rights should not be articulated in terms of the right for me to be anything I want to be and do anything I want to be, as long as I'm not harming anybody else. Rights really becomes the things that need to be legally protected that allow me to fulfill my obligations to other people. That, I think, is, and that takes you know, legally and philosophically to the heart of what I think would be a good beginning for a rethinking of anthropology in the current day. Mm. Okay. You mentioned the word, the term hate speech earlier. You said this might be viewed as hate speech. Um, you know, on this show, what we've tried to do is uh, we have folks from all sorts of backgrounds and yeah. um, we, we want to hear a lot of perspective and try to do it in a respectful way. Um, yeah. From your perspective, perspective as a Christian, as a historian, is there such a thing as hate speech? And if so, what should be done about it? Yeah, interesting question. Not an easy one to answer. Um, clearly, I think there is speech that can be motivated by hate. Uh, speech that is designed to denigrate another human being on the basis of an artificial category would seem to be a good candidate for, for hate speech. Uh, I'm also, though, of the opinion that hate speech needs to be protected speech. Yeah, I'm an old style liberal from that perspective. I think once you get into the realm of policing people's speech, governmental policing of speech, all kinds of problems start to result from that. So, yeah, I think people can use words with the deliberate malicious intent of denigrating, dehumanizing or damaging somebody. But I would also argue that it is important that that is protected speech. Yeah, there's also a sense in which you can say things that you know might hurt someone's feelings, but you're not trying to be hateful, yeah. but you're trying to communicate with them. Yeah, I think the problem with the category of hate speech as it's currently used is it's become so expansive that it re it's really come to mean anything that I disagree with mm. and makes me feel that I might hold a wrong opinion on something. And that, I think, is not why I'm thinking. What I'm thinking of hate speech is that which is deliberately used to dehumanize a particular person. Now, a trans person might say, hey, you use the term transgender ideology. That's dehumanizing. Well, then I think we could have, sit down and have a conversation about, well, exactly why and how do you think that that is dehumanizing? Uh, 
so it, you know, my, my broad definitions don't preclude the possibility of disagreement and, and discussion there. But I do think that the, the you know, hate speech has become a very convenient term to silence people with whom one happens to disagree. What's been the best critique of your book? Um, I think, uh, I mean, there have been a, a couple of people have offered critiques of my interpretation of particular philosophers. Uh, I think I was at Princeton last week and Shiloh Brooks uh, took me to task on my, my, some of my aspects of uh, the interpretation uh, of Nietzsche. And I, he's persuaded me that my interpretation of Nietzsche really needs to be uh, sharpened up at that point. By and large, there's not been a huge amount of pushback on the overall thesis because I presented the thesis less as a polemic and more as a kind of, I think this is a description of where we are. And I think most people that I've talked to, uh, even non-Christian people would say, yeah, but I, I, I think the way you describe Western people thinking is, is pretty accurate, albeit they might differ in one or two uh, points of interpretation. Overall, it's been pretty positive. I, I mean, I wrote the book as a teacher of undergraduates, knowing that I will have gay and even possibly trans people in my classes. And I did not want to write a book that I felt they could justifiably feel dehumanize them in some way. So I try to keep the narrative to very much a, a, dis, a, a dispassionate description rather than a polemic. Okay, so 10 years, we have you back on. Where, what's happened? What's changed? <laughs> you're, I know well, you're not a, I know you're not a food teller, but <laughs> put your wow. head on. You're pre yeah, <laughs> That's a great question. A couple of things. What I hope will change is I hope that at least there'll have been sufficient pushback on the trans stuff that we're no longer having to talk about puberty blockers and trans surgery for, for prepubescent and teenage kids. Uh, I, I think that, to me, that's the big issue of the day. I hope that from an administrative policy perspective, that is ancient history at that point. Where I think the identity politics is going is this. I, and, and this is what I missed about transgenderism in the book, and I've since become convinced is, is another important strand to it. I think transgenderism is, I, I, I articulated it very much as part of the sort of the LGBTQ narrative in the book. I also think it's part of the transhumanist narrative. I think the big issues of the next decade are going to be, where does transhumanism go? Uh, you know, there's, on the one hand, there's the immortality movement, you know, let's all live forever movement. Well, that, that's one side of it. More, worry, I think that's nonsense. More worrying to me is the the technology, you know, the, the merging of human beings with, with machines, either physically or in terms of dependency. That, I think, is going to throw up the big issues of the next 10 years. Uh, and that could happen in a variety of ways. I, I wonder... Last thing for you here. I think the issue of consent is going to be there because mm. you look at what's going on with the Me Too movement. Right? Yeah. That's a movement about consent. And I'm not trying to belittle rape, of course, but a yeah. woman saying no and a man, a man hearing that and respecting that, that's a consent issue. And a man, yeah. to be clear, what do you guys say this stuff? I believe rape should be shot in public. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to belittle rape, et cetera. Hey, but, I'm persuaded. Don't die. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But you have that. But then you, you, you brought up an issue of um, teenagers and yeah. can they consent or children? Can they consent to yeah. uh, puberty blockers? 
um, and yep. then to the immortality angle. And that's an issue of consent. Can someone consent to, you know, and then within you go to the abortion issue. That's an issue of consent. There's, there's, a, there's an undertone of consent and who can consent, when can yeah. you consent, that, that, that has to be wrestled with, it seems like, in Western culture. I'll let yeah. you respond to that before you go. Great question. And I think you, you mentioned the Me Too movement. I think one of the very important things that the Me Too movement made, made us all aware of is the complexity of consent. What does it mean when the move, when the 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 studio mogul demands a sexual favor from a young girl desperate to get her first break in the movie, or a young guy desperate to get his first break in a movie? What what does consent look like in those situations? I think Me Too really did a great service. It did a number of good services, and one of them was it it really brought to public attention the complexity. Of, uh, of consent. And I think you're right. We, we have hung an awful lot of our ethical thinking about some of the most important elements and aspects of human behavior, particularly sexual behavior, on the issue of consent. And yet that is a very, very weak and complicated thread to hang these things on. Uh, in the book, I'm, I'm, I'm making the point that it won't protect us ultimately from in theory, I mean, in practice, it, it, we may find we never go here, but in theory, it's not, it can't protect you from, from legitimizing uh, adults having sex with children because we don't accept childhood consent as being necessary for a whole heap of things. Uh, going to school, eating your greens, going to bed at a certain time, all kinds of some trivial, some not so trivial. Uh, childhood legal consent has a very, very equivocal status. It, it does, uh, but the trans movement is pushing on that. It is. And um, again, that's, you know, it, isn't it odd that we live in a world where a child can't consent to a tattoo, mm-hmm. but can consent to uh, chemical and medical procedures that could prevent them from having children? 25 years down the line. That's a very interesting and disturbing development. So, yeah, I think you're right. Consent, debates about consent are going to continue. And I think we need to, uh, yeah, we need, I've been saying this to students, we need, students want to do a PhD. I've been saying to them, ethics. Don't be a church historian like me. We're ten a penny. We need a lot of good thinkers in the area of ethics, particularly medical ethics and legal ethics going forward, because all kinds of questions are coming up, uh, not least this question of consent that require very, very clear thought. Okay. Where should we send people to? Obviously, we'll link to the book. Um, where else do you want to send people to? Um, I write every two weeks at firstthings.com on the web. I also do an opinion piece for World Magazine a couple of times a month. And actually, if you go to the Ethics and Public Policy Center, eppc.org, I have a web page. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies. If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship. Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile. 
Hi, my name is Michel Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.